Hey y'all, welcome back to Love and Grit. I'm Laia. I'm Justin. And I'm Rachel. This episode is all about inspiration leading to greatness. Our guests continue to lead this journey. Dr. Janice Johnson-Diaz does it through her work with our girls and helping to find their joy every day of their lives. Ellen Yin does it through her stride and initiatives in the food industry. So let's get ready to inspire. But first, around the Philly phase. It's the end of the year. Give us your favorite moment. I love recording the podcast with you guys and that we've been able to continue to do that. You can say, oh, that's so sweet or something, but never mind. And also, it was really, really special, the Love and Grit Storefronts project. For months, the team talked about doing this, and I'm so happy it really happened. And to be able to work with so many artists and business owners, and it was so special and continues to be special. So that's one of my favorite moments. Check it out. You can see it. Visit philly.com slash storefronts. Laia? Usually Rachel does this, but I really mean this. One of my favorite moments of the year was an actual love and grit moment. And that was a recent moment when we got together to do our On the Road series because we could be doing this thing on Zoom and we don't always see each other personally. And so it yes. just good not to just be together, the three of us having fun acting a fool, but to also go see Tina at Buddha Babe, who we had interviewed earlier this year and just like give mm-hmm. her love love and see her receive it and then when yes. we went to uncle bobby's and actually running into mark lamar hill i mean yes. was moment. And like, i was actually going to use that moment that was such a powerful moment for me personally we'll talk about i'm sorry to see him. i really enjoyed that time with you guys and meeting those business owners it's one thing to talk about all of this stuff but to like actually go to these businesses mm-hmm. It's important that we show up in person for things now. We show up to buy things. We have to support our community now more than ever because it does feel like things are getting back to normal, but But, a lot of people lost a lot. People, money, things. And we have to remember that we have to move together at the same yeah. time. And we, yeah, we met so many dope people on doing this show in the last I year. Mean, this is it's our amazing. second season. Yeah. It's so, amazing yeah. how many insanely talented, smart, driven, Philadelphia loving people we met. Yeah. We continue to partner with these folks. That's what I like. It's not just a one stop and, okay, we chat with you, bye. It's like, oh no, we're attending your events yeah. and you're participating in our events. And, yeah, and promoting it, their businesses and, yeah, you know, finding ways to like shine the light on places that didn't get light for no good reason. And these folks are ambassadors for our region, which is so important. I'm just excited happy to be on this show. <laughs> so my moment is going to honestly be interviewing Questlove with you guys. Wow. Oh, I forgot about that. that was like a such a special moment that he gave us so much time and talked yes. so personally with us. I just am continuously amazed at the amount of talent in one person. Yeah, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. To be able to have him on Love and Grit was awesome. Just like all our other guests. Yeah, yeah. Really special. We might as well. Oh, we gotta start a show, huh? Let's get this straight. Some people talk about doing the work. Dr. Janice Johnson-Diaz has been and is and will continue to do what most just post about. Now, I usually don't quote a bio, but there's some truths here that must be stated. She is a renowned sociologist and scholar who has devoted her life to bridging the gap among the research, theory, and practices. How? By her efforts in real-world solutions to create healthier people and healthy communities. What? Her grassroots community foundation that trains girls to be change makers by showing them how to use their frustrations to solve social issues like hashtag in period poverty. Not to mention using her education experience and expertise of raising a young change maker, Hey Marley, to inspire her latest book, 
Parent Like It Matters, How to Raise Joyful, Change-Making Girls. You just have spoken to Salesforce. When it comes to gigantic companies like that, what do they have you in to talk about exactly? So lately I've been talking a lot to a lot of big corporations. I spoke to MasterCard, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Prudential, Sephora. I'm awfully busy talking to companies about two core things. One is companies are made up of caregivers, parents. And I have a book out, Parent Like Matters. And so much of my conversation with them is how they can organize the workplace to remember that they are caregivers in there trying to do their work as well and how they can structure for that level of inclusion. Building on that, I talk a lot to organizations. I'm a sociologist. I'm a research sociologist, right? I talk to organizations about how to structure for equity. Given that we just came through a racial reckoning of 2020 and a pandemic that we are trying to pretend does not exist, I have been working for the past decade on issues of social justice and public health. So I talk to organizations about how they are hidden biases and hidden incentive structures that have made it difficult for them now that there's been a racial reckoning. Simply said, they have Black, Brown folks in their workplace of all kinds of identities that have been performing, engaging with them. They have been upset at the inequalities that have existed in the workplace and the inequities that are structured in the fabric. And those folks are not taking it anymore. Similarly, you have white coworkers with multiple identities that have been subsumed for so many years who are not taking it anymore. People now see that they can have a revolution. And these big companies are well poised to be able to lead that revolution. And some of these companies, the ones that I've spoken to, are really excited about trying. And so my work is to offer them strategies for how to move themselves forward so that they can help to create greater equity in the world through what they do. My particular style is to use as much humor and profanity as possible so that people recognize. I think it's really important that we always talk about, oh, we're so much more alike than different. Well, who doesn't go home and complain about their coworkers? Everybody wants a better day. But the question is, are we willing to structure for a better day? Because we spend so much time trying to do this like, well, I spoke to her and I tell him and I da 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 da. The interpersonal exchanges are lovely, but they actually won't advance the world. And if huh. we do want the revolution that we want, we're going to need structural changes. That's where I come in. Where do we start? It seems like such a big undertaking. So when you talk to these companies, what are the small Step bites one. or steps we can take to start? Because you got to start. So I try to help companies think about what they already do best. I can never just talk to a company randomly. So Salesforce, they personalize and customize things for other companies. And that's what they do really well. So if they want equity in their workplace, then they need to transfer the thing that they do into their organizational culture. So that's where I start. Why is that so hard? Why can people do it externally, but internally, there seems always to be more trouble? Today, I talked a little bit in one of the questions I was asked about people's origin stories. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I said, imagine... I don't know if you watch Marvel. I'm a big Marvel fan. Yes. So we have origin stories of Xavier, of Wolverine, right? Imagine if you have gone... Right. I'm 50. Imagine if you've gone this whole time and you know the origin story of Wolverine. Mm. Right. You know the Mm. origin story of Xavier. Like, you know that, know that. And then all of a sudden in summer of 2020, 
somebody says to you, the origin story is wrong. Wolverine does not have adamantium. Xavier was not born with this power. You're going to feel some type of way. It destroys everything that you think you know. Yeah. That's what happened to a country that is 72% white in 2020. This little origin story, America's European, America's this, America's that, and your entire origin story has been disrupted. And it's been happening in corporations and institutions is that people are beholden to their origin stories and the presence of members of other communities, vulnerable population, intersectional identities, black folks, native folks, right? Disabled folk, gay folk disrupts what they know to be the origin story. What we do really poorly as a society, when people are disrupted, we don't make any effort to be like, let me walk you through. The story that you've known has fallacies. It's incomplete. And it also doesn't, it's not in favor of the majority either. So that also prolongs the need to tell origin stories because it was working in the favor of the majority. So you're destroying without building. So what do you do with the 72% who have known their history to be white, to be favorable, to be honorable, and you come around and be like, murderer, blood upon your shoulder. (laughs) Like, how do you do that? And the thing is, if you're focused on happiness, temporary, you're going to beat it in. But if you want to think about the long arc, how do you create a society that has had bad stories, incomplete stories, incorrect stories, and people still have to live together? Mm -hmm. Then you have to take a different framework. So if you're an organization that still wants to have Black folk, women, people who are differently abled, gay folk. You have to take the long arc. You cannot just bludgeon everybody through. You have to come up with strategy, policies, right? Policies that are written as well as operational policies. You have to take a multi-pronged approach because it is difficult. If I have held tight to white is right, you cannot just come and snatch it out of me real quickly, because you're not just snatching it from white folk, you're snatching it from other groups. There are black folks who believe white is right. And you went ahead and just snatched. Been modeling for generations of Mm -hmm. success around that. Yes. And I believe there's some snatching needs to be done. It's just that snatching alone will not do. And so we need to start thinking about strategic actions that are going to move us forward, which is why people like Alicia Garza, who talk about power and the importance of having power to be transformative power are so important. For me, in looking at institutions, it is how to build that power. And I believe that you build it not just in just the individual interaction, but through institutional policies and individual actions, also through people's communities. How do they raise their children? How are they taking care of things? How are they moving? Because you have to think about it across the life cycle. All people have more power and more money. Yeah. If we want to transform things, we have to look at institutions. The first and most important institution is the family. And this just feels like one vein of your work. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I mean, then you're working on the other end of the spectrum <laughs> with children. I honestly believe that's where this needs to happen the most. So if you can stymie the problem at the beginning or the issue or start talking about these things to a younger audience, like you were saying, you don't have to snatch anything. No, that's what I keep trying to tell people. I was like, y'all want all talk to the old people. The old people, they old. The real work is going to be with the young people and the people who cultivate them. 
The racist is not formed in the abstract. They are formed in households. You need to parent like it matters because it matters. What you do with these kids, everything, the ways in which you embrace them, the way you teach them about other people, where you decide to educate them, how they dress, their sense of voice, who they're around. What do you say to the naysayers that go, it's different. Your daughter is different than the average kid. What do you say to those naysayers? I love that. It's like my favorite thing for people to say. You have no idea. It just makes me so happy on the inside. Because (laughs) in the book, people get to find out some really fascinating things because, you know, people People like to think of you as where you are right now. They don't think of you as who you are. But let me give you a good audience. So when people hear that I was barefooted at 10 working in farms and walking seven miles or that I spent most of my time running away from being raped or when people realize I didn't meet my mother until I was nine years old, that I met my father at 28, that I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Then all of a sudden, I'm not Dr. Janice Johnson Doris, right? Like you begin to see that much of who I am or how I come to be is a product of real intentionality. These girls that I work with and their families is to say that we can parent beyond the trauma, beyond the pain. We still need institutional supports, Right. So I don't get to be who I am with good mentors who are black, white, Asian with school systems that have helped support me. But when people think that it's oh, like that now, your eyes widen your gaze. And so the book walks people through how does a person who comes from this being beaten every day? How does the person become this person who's joyous? And that is through a set of cultivated intentional actions. But it takes a lot of work. Hell yeah. Everything that is worth having is work. The question is, does the work suck? So unlike people's jobs, the work of becoming your best self is going to have sucky moments. But it is the best work because the reward is the payoff. They should like, that's Dr. Janice Johnson bias, right? Like (laughs) the work is intentional work, but you have to have an eye on that prize that the greatest gift you can have is the sense of being present and loving to yourself. If you want a better world, then it begins by creating a better you. And that way you can create a space to have better children. Oh, Justin, you got a lot on your mind right now. (laughs) Justin stared at me. There's been so much talk about this since George Floyd's death. Do you see action? I do. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of positive things have come about, macro and micro things. And my concern is that because of the construction of media, we don't get the replenishing of the hopefulness. Mm -hmm. We don't. So we are seeing young people make decisions that... The inequity that we, those of us who are older, have perpetuated that they're intolerant of it, right? Not all of them. There's still deep bigotry, but we're seeing young people come together. We are seeing whites who are distinguishing themselves in different groups who are pro-liberty and for the longest time were bystanders really standing up in organizations and public spaces to guard the lives of Black and Brown and Indigenous people. We are seeing, albeit a snail's pace crawl, to an acknowledgement that climate change matters, which is really a racial issue. 
For most of us who know you, you are also a liaison to everything community involved. Can you just tell us like at least three organizations that people should know about right now outside of grassroots? Yes. Outside of Grassroots Community Foundation, you should follow Girls for Change. You should also follow Girls for Gender Equity. They work with bi and transgender and poor black girls. And you should certainly follow, and this is a big name organization, the ACLU. In this moment, if you follow the ACLU and the work that they're doing, there'll be opportunities for you to think about legislative and political action, which is gonna be vital for us to be able to move forward. Done. Thank you. Name of the book so everybody can read it. The name of the book, Parent Like It Matters, How to Raise Joyful Change-Making Girls. Yes, the book is applicable to boys. Ellen Yen is not your average restaurant owner. Sure, she's responsible for some of your favorite eating spots, which have all received high praise from the James Beard Foundation. Most foodies in Philly have tasted the goodness at Fork, High Street Philly, and a kitchen and a bar. However, Ellen doesn't limit her energy to restaurant operations. She has become a bridge between community and the food industry. She was a leading force behind the creation of the Sisterly Love Collective, and her pop-up food delivery, the Wonton Project, kept our bellies full while fighting to combat anti-Asian hate by contributing to the organizations that support the AAPI community. Where are we restaurant-wise community in Philadelphia as we end this year and look to hopefully start exiting the pandemic? What's your read on the situation? Well, it's been obviously a really difficult two years for many people. And I feel that guests are ready to come back. They're excited about celebrating. We had a great Thanksgiving. So I think that customers in general are ready to come back. It's hard to say because now we have Omicron, but we know so much more about how to mitigate some of these things that I'm hopeful that we will come out of this. But I think that operators are excited about being open again and reuniting with their guests. And we are still seeing many people who are saying that they're coming in to meet someone they haven't seen in two years. That means a lot to someone like myself. Fork is a destination restaurant. But that is so important, especially because there's been so many traditions that were missed. So people had to create new traditions, but we know that people want to reconnect. And so establishments like yours are so important to our industry and to Philadelphia. Well, it's important to me. That's my home. I live in Center City, Philadelphia, and I walk through Independence Mall to come to work. It's great to see when the line of the Liberty Bell is past 60 minutes. I'm very excited. Are you a Philly native? When did you fall in love with Philly? Like, why Philly? All those questions. Well, I'm a Philly native now. Now I've spent my entire adult life, actually over half my life in Philadelphia. I'm originally from the northern New Jersey shore. I grew Ah. up in a small little town in Monmouth County, New Jersey, and I came to Philadelphia to go to college in the mid-80s, and I have never left. I love it. Why? Tell people why. Well, one of the things that I feel about Philadelphia is, although it's the fifth largest city in the country, it still feels like a small community, a small town. You walk down the street, inevitably, you're going to run into somebody that you know. And it's also international. So if you're walking around Rittenhouse Square or University City, you hear many different languages being spoken. It's diverse. I love that you can go from neighborhood to neighborhood and the personality of the neighborhoods change. 
it's a world-class city that's super accessible. And I think that's what we all love about it. When did you know that Philadelphia food was different? Like what was the first place that you fell in love with that you were like, the scene is different? I started out going to school at Penn and they take you on a trip of all of Philadelphia and they go to Chinatown and the Italian market. That was all great and everything. But I started working in my first job in Philadelphia at a restaurant called La Terrasse, which is across from the law school on 34th and Sansom, where the White Dog Cafe is. And I just fell in love with this restaurant. It was a French Thai inspired restaurant that served Portuguese wine. What? At nighttime, students would come in and it would become almost like a nightclub. I was a bartender there and I loved it. And I loved the energy of that restaurant. And that restaurant spawned many other restaurants like the White Dog Cafe, like the Old Carolinas, the Frog Commissary, many people. Oh, yeah. So it was like one of those restaurants that had an influence. And I just remember thinking not only about the food, but about the people and the culture that made it so cohesive and a great place to become part of Philadelphia. How did you know you wanted to own restaurants? Because it's different where you're like, hey, I want to study restaurant management or I want to be a chef. But to go on the track of owning Mm -hmm. restaurants Mm -hmm. and having that entrepreneurial spirit and the business mindset, I was wondering how you got to that track. Well, I grew up before the big chef explosion, so... I don't think that really was something that crossed my mind, but I did love working in restaurants when I was in high school. And I knew how much my mother loved to entertain. And I was always part of the home entertaining. So entertaining people, hospitality, I feel like was always in my blood. But at that time, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to open a restaurant immediately upon graduating from school, that I was going to have to raise money and do all this. And But I was just constantly thinking all the different ways that I could figure out how to open a restaurant and all the while looking for that perfect job where I was going to hopefully or not hopefully fall in love with it and be inspired by it. So I graduated from college and then I started working in the advertising field and that eventually turned into working in nonprofit fundraising and I was doing event management. I never felt the same connection with people that I felt when I worked in a restaurant. There was a sense of belonging, a sense of teamwork, a sense of hospitality and creativity that I didn't get from any of these other jobs. Finally, I decided I was going to go back to graduate school because I was failing at my then management job. (laughs) So I figured, what the (laughs) heck, I'm going to go to graduate school. And I said to myself, I'm either going to become a hospital administrator or I'm going to open a restaurant. And so- They're interesting choices. Right? In a way it is, but in a way, hospital and hospitality have so much in common because you're taking care of people hospitality is really what makes the experience. The food can be great, but like if the hospitality isn't there, that's what makes everything special. But we know we can break it because we've had bad service before. (laughs) Absolutely. Food and service have to go together and we're all human. Everybody makes mistakes. There could be a huge service problem and the kitchen might be able to fix the problem by getting the food out faster than they normally might be able to. But on the same side, There could be a misfire or a misunderstanding about the food. And it's the hospitality and service side that 
can also make up the difference. So it's that combination of food and hospitality that really makes for an exceptional experience. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I, I, I graduate with tons of student debt, just like everybody else. And I decide that I have to get a full-time job. And I realize I'm still working my butt off. And I was just like, well, if I'm going to work like this, maybe I should just go for it and take a chance because this is truly what I love doing. I never really loved anything as much as I love the restaurant industry. And that's when I decided I'm going to go for it, write a business plan, try to open a restaurant. It really is amazing when you look at your career. You've had such an interesting arc in the middle of Philadelphia's really dining renaissance. There's been phases and you've been a consistent throughout it and innovated, which is really amazing to bring us things like High Street, where you can get great pizza and great soup. That's what's interesting about Philadelphia too, is not one thing always plays. You play to many different audiences. Don't laugh, but when we first opened Fork, the food was like $14 for an entree. And you have to always be changing because your customers are always changing. They're moving, they're growing, they're aging, they're having families, they're moving out to the suburbs, they're moving back into the city. The environment is constantly evolving. And so we do too, from the time that we open, growing into the place next door that included the private dining room and a prepared foods and takeout that eventually led to High Street. And then being able to work with the AKA folks who operate AKA Rittenhouse Square, that's been an amazing journey as well, because if you like wine or cocktails, they have an amazing beverage program and they're growing as well. And so we've had the opportunity to grow with them. We've seen so many industries, not just the hospitality, of course, have to take pivots as a result of the pandemic. But where do you think restaurants and the hospitality industry are going so that they can still remain competitive and innovative for their particular fields? Do you see a particular direction or things changing for the next five, 10 years? Well, there's a lot changing constantly. And there's so much about our industry that First of all, it's so big and diverse. I mean, that includes everything from McDonald's to Fork, you know what I mean? I think it's very clear that people do want to come back and celebrate and be in a restaurant. So I'm not going to say that fine dining or sit-down restaurants are going away because there is an audience of people who want that. People are still going to be graduating from college and still want to celebrate in that really nice restaurant. So there's still going to be a market for that. Maybe it won't be the biggest component or maybe there'll be a lot less. Takeout is definitely going to be something that stays. Right now, the interest in authenticity of food, where it comes from, how it's being grown, how it's being distributed, all those things really will come together and offer something that's different. And that's, I think, the fun part about Philadelphia. And what I loved about Philadelphia's food scene over the past 15 some years is that it's grown so much in terms of its depth. Not innovation. Yeah, innovation. Not only is it about American cuisine and what does that mean, but it could be about Asian cuisine. I mean, like look at Chinese food. Chinese food used to be primarily Cantonese food. You saw more Northern style cuisine, now Szechuan cuisine. Now there's even more regions of China being represented in Chinatown and a perfect example of pivoting. Now the kids of people who originally opened their restaurants in Chinatown are coming back and saying, hey, we want a different style. Oh, I bet. 
and we want to do it differently. So there are people coming up with so many different ideas and ways to present. It's hard to say any one thing. The past two years has enabled more restaurateurs to be talking to each other than ever before. And that came from the fact that we all hit rock bottom at the same time and no one knew what the answer was. And so everybody was looking to everybody else for ideas and solutions. And from that grew more conversation. And that's what's enabling innovation to happen, I think, at different levels and different types of concepts. The Sisterly Love Food Fair came out of that, right? Sisterly Love Food Fair and the Sisterly Love Collective came out of that. It started with a woman friend of mine from Chicago who's a restaurateur, Rohini Day, who owns Vermillion, starting and saying, hey, women should get together and have a platform to have a common voice and be able to get support from each other and share information. And we started that in Philadelphia in, I believe, July 2020. And it started with talking about things like, what are we doing with the outdoor restrictions? What are the indoor restrictions? Where do I get propane? What do I do about the labor shortage? Who knows a handyman who can come fix my whatever? And that grew into last fall us saying, hey, why don't we do a project together? And Bridget Foy from Crybaby Pasta and Bridget Foy Restaurant said, I'm going to have an event in my backyard, almost like a farm stand in my streetery. Does anyone want to come? And that turned into, well, that's a great idea. Why don't we move this around different restaurants? And that's how the Sisterly Love Food Fair kind of took off last Christmas season. And it enabled a lot of women to be able to be out there. It was great. Great seeing everybody out in the street, in the cold, sharing ideas and promoting each other. Well, that's going to do it for the year for season two of Love and Grit. Rachel and Laia, we did it. We did it. Wait, I got to ask y'all a question. I got a, a hard question before we leave this year. Oh, goodness. Rachel and Justin, who is at the top of your wish list for a Love and Grit season three? Ooh. Ooh, I, oh, I want Black Thought. Black Thought. I choose Black Thought. Black okay. Thought. We're going to get you Black Thought. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Will Smith. Oh, I, mm, thanks, Justin. I am reading his book. It's a heavy lift, but I think that could happen. Okay. All right. Like you. How about you? Yo, to be honest, at this point, in this moment, as you asked me, I want Quinta Brunson, the creator of Abbott Elementary from Philly, your new favorite TV show, and the star of the show. If you asked Ryan, he would say her as well, because they recently took a cute photo together. So yes, yes, yes. All right, we're going to make it happen then. I don't know about that Will Smith, but I... You're going to work on Jazzy Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a good one, too. Listen, I'm just happy that yes. you guys show up. Yes. I'm happy that you yes. let us show up. Yes. I control the Zoom. <laughs> we love All right, you, guys, Justin. have a great year. Great holidays. Thanks for listening. <sighs> yeah, and we out. All right, love you guys. Bye. Yeah, love love you. you.